0: Okay. So um, so I've got this new book of short stories called Ball, which, as my sister-in-law pointed out, it's very inappropriate for us to be right by the children's section um, with this book. But so be it. Um, I am actually going to read three short things, um, and they're short. I, all told, it's going to be 20, 25 minutes tops, I, I promise. Um, and then afterward, we can con- continue to eat and drink. Um did everybody admire the ball macaroons? Because I just thought that was like the cutest thing ever. So I just want to be sure that they get a they get noted, they get acknowledged. Okay. <laughs> um, so feel free to come up and eat and drink because I don't want to schlep this stuff home afterward. And um, again, it's just it's really lovely to see you guys. Um, I told Noel we didn't need to; it wasn't going to be a big turnout. Um, so I apologize for those of you who are standing, um, and thank you. Bless your hearts. Okay, the first thing I'm going to read is actually not from the book. Um, The first thing I'm going to read is this thing. uh, There's a website called The Nervous Breakdown uh, that many of you know, I'm sure, and they ask authors to do a self-interview. So I did this a while back. It's only three questions. I asked myself and answered three questions, okay? (laughs) Question number one. What would you rather do than write? Knit. Knit. Read indiscriminately, watch television indiscriminately, go to the dentist, this is sort of disingenuous, I love going to the dentist, clean my bathroom, run errands in 117 degree Phoenix, vacuum, cook elaborate meals for myself that take five times as long to make as they do to eat, visit my dad in the nursing home, visit my stepmother in the hospital, Read student work, prepare for classes, search Zappos for black and white wingtip shoes, make lists of excuses about why I'm not writing, complain about how hard it is to write. (laughs) Question number two. How ashamed are you to be complaining about how hard it is to write when you have the incredible luxury and privilege to be able to write with two working arms and hands and ten fingers so you don't have to tap the keyboard with a stick in your mouth like the paralyzed poet Mark O'Brien or blink your every word out letter by letter like Jean-Dominique Boby trapped in his diving bell of a body. And that you live in a country where you can pretty pretty much write whatever the hell you want without fear of imprisonment or torture or exile or beheading or nothing worse than internet trolls or Amazon reviewers snark and that you had a mother who always supported your silly childhood dreams of being a writer and berated you to finish that brilliant novel and that you do not have the distraction of sticky children or a demanding partner or a sweet little dog you have to take care of and that you have a decent, nay, fabulous job that actually wants you to be writing and offers just enough time to write and be productive if you weren't addicted to wasting all those hours sitting on your couch knitting and watching Breaking Bad or six-year-old episodes of Law & Order SVU you've already seen multiple times with decent health benefits so you could get the preventive care that caught those adenocarcinoma cells early enough to avoid metastasis and chemo and paid for the -the state-of-the-art snip-snipping out of your uterus and aftercare pain meds so you could get back to your writing desk without agonizing pain, like Stephen King after his brutal, shattering accident, who got himself and his broken, agonized ass in a chair first chance he got for maybe 20 minutes the first day, then 40, then maybe an hour before fainting with the pain, because he is a real writer, dedicated and hardworking and appreciative of his blessings and gifts, and not some whiny, princessy, privileged brat. Answer, very. <laughs> Question three, what literary tattoo should you tattoo on the tender flesh of your inner arm? Answer, from Gore Vidal, quote, when I hear about writer's block, I think, fuck off, stop writing, for Christ's sake, plenty more where you came from. <laughs> okay, now I will turn to the book. Um, I can't read ball. For a variety of reasons, but I also can't not, not acknowledge Ball, because um, it all started with that. So I'm just going to read the first couple of pages of the story that is called Ball. My sweet little dog, Tess, is what they call apricot. She has tiny blue eyes, almond-shaped and set close together, like Barbara Streisand's, and the prettiest little dog vagina. I spent 20 minutes examining and marveling at it once with my best friend, Dana, before she had a boyfriend, and we spent a lot of our time together appreciating Tess. Dana is a biologist, which gave the experience a legitimizingly clinical spirit. It's a tidy, quarter-inch slit in a pinky-tip protuberance of skin, delicate and irrelevant, and veiled with fine apricot hair. Tess rolled over and spread out happily, trustingly for us. She lives almost pathetically for love, for attention, like a quivering heroine from some 50s romance novel. She also lives for food and naps, but mostly for ball. Tennis balls, squishy rubber ones with bells inside, any spherical object to love will do. I've learned hard rubber balls are the best. The last time she had a flimsy plastic one, she worked it down to bits, chewed it with such passion there was almost nothing left. She came with a ball. I'd been living alone in my big new house with a fireplace for six days, came home on a Thursday evening to the still lingering smell of paint and spackle and fresh sliced carpet carpet fibers, and realized, I can have a dog here. (laughs) Apartment living hadn't allowed for that, but now I had my own face with a fireplace. I was only 25 and very proud of having my own house. I went right back out and bought a newspaper and called the first ad for a cockapoo. Eleven months, shots, fixed, housebroken, playful. I drove to an apartment. Co- Excuse me. <coughs> oh. Thank you. I drove to an apartment complex in Northridge. The dog was hideous at first—more blurred crossbred terrier and toy poodle than anything else—with skinny, crooked legs that needed to be broken and reset, and those creepy blue eyes, a brown nose faded like creamed coffee, and she was covered with fleas, little dark leaping specks visible through her beige fur. I made polite chat with the owner, a heavy 60-ish woman named Gloria. That isn't beige, dear. They call that apricot on a poodle, who couldn't be bothered with the dog anymore, and then told her that, yes, I knew the ad said she'd be 11 months, but I really did want a puppy. The dog dropped a soiled, shreddy, lime-colored tennis ball in front of me and looked up, her tiny eyes squinting with hope and expectation. You want to play with my ball? Here, look. Here's a ball. You want to play? When I ignored her, she pounced on the ball with her skinny front legs, her paws shoving it toward me, ball, 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 until I gave in and threw it for her. But when I got up to leave, I suddenly realized that if, it, if I didn't take her, it meant I would have to keep interviewing dogs. This seemed like an exhausting prospect, continuing to call deceptive ads, inquire about worms, meet imperfect dogs, choose. Also, it meant I would be going home that night to my big house alone. I told Gloria I would take the dog, figuring that if it didn't work out, I would just get rid of it somehow. I wrote Gloria a check for $75, the cost of getting the dog fixed, and the shots, and she gave me a leash, a quarter bag of puppy chow, and the dog. At the last moment, Gloria put the soiled tennis ball in the puppy chow bag, like a parting gift. The dog's got to have that ball, she said, or any kind of ball. You'll see. I stopped at the drugstore on the way home with the dog to buy flea shampoo and dog treats, and I dumped the dirty, lime-hairy ball in a dumpster. Through the window of the car, the dog watched me do this, anxious, her squinty little eyes made wide and round by alarm. At home, she suffered submissively, mournfully, through the kitchen, kitchen sink flea bath and a towel drying in, fi- in front of a fire in the fireplace, then curled up tight as a snail shell at the foot of my bed, looking orphaned and weepy. She wouldn't touch the doggy rag-tug thing I'd bought, nor the faux bone treats, nor the plastic squeaky toy shaped like a garish hamburger with the works. I went to bed wondering how to unload an ugly and sentient animal. Several hours later, I heard a light thud sound, then a thump roll, thump roll, and I looked across my room to see the little dog trotting happily toward the bed with a Granny Smith apple in her mouth. (laughs) She jumped up on the bed with it, dropped it, peered up squintily with hope and expectation and shoved it toward me with her crooked apricot paws. I threw the apple across the room for her for a while and each time she brought it back to me thrilled, suffused with intimate joy at our connection. She finally tired, snail curled on the empty pillow next to me, and went to sleep. When I awoke in the morning, her brown nose was breathing in my face, and her almond shaped blue eyes blinked at me with drowsy adoration, and I was abruptly slapped swollen with love. I went out first thing and bought her a real ball, periwinkle blue, hard rubber, just the right size and with a solid, stable bounce. I loved her so much it was numbing, and sometimes to jab a feeling at myself, I fantasized about her dying, getting hit by a car, drinking from a contaminated puddle of water when we went on walks, succumbing to an attack of bloat, or I would wet the fantasy by imagining that I had to sacrifice her for some reason, put her out of some misery. I'd have her dying of encroaching cancers, where I forced myself to give her a mercifully quick and lethal shot of morphine, because keeping her alive and in pain would only fulfill my own selfish needs. This usually made me cry, and once, picturing that and crying, I called Dana and made her promise me if Tess ever did get sick, she'd get drugs and a syringe from the lab, and we'd take care of it so Theta would never suffer." Or I'd think about an epic disaster, a nuclear bomb or a nine-point earthquake that somehow destroyed all the food and left me with nothing but Tess, and would I be willing to starve to death instead of eat her? How bad something would have to get to force me to do such a thing. I wondered what Tess would taste like. I imagined her flesh was tender and sweet. Her paw pads were the color of cracked, grayish charcoal and smelled of burned popcorn. When she yawned, I poked my nose into the gap of her jaw and inhaled. I ran my hands over the wiry, pubic-like hairs at the base of her spine and the fine, clumped curls at her throat. She let her head fall all the way back when I did this, so trusting. Her throat stretched to a soft, defenseless apricot sweep. I just wanted to crawl inside of her sometimes, or have her crawl inside of me, keep her safe there forever. Um, I'll stop there, but I will also remind you we have dried apricots to snack on on the table. Okay, to wrap things up, um, I'm going to read the knitting story. I, I tend to write very long stories. Uh, this is one of the two stories I've ever written that are actually quite short. Um, so I get to read the, I'll read the whole story. It's quite short. The knitting story. <clears throat> She knits as a clumsy, pudge-fingered child because her mother loves to tell her the once-upon-a-time story of knitting socks for her college boyfriend, painstaking argyle diamond wool socks for the princely young man who carelessly thrust his foot through the sock toe after all that labor the mother did to show and prove her love because that was how. She knits because her mother is at a luncheon or antiques show or mahjong and can't the child occupy and entertain herself? And so after school the child trudges to the craft shop and spends her allowance coins on a let's get knitting booklet and fuzzy pink yarn like a long bubblegum worm and a pair of pointy twig thick needles she's a little frightened of because if you walk around with them and trip you could poke out an eye. And on the floor of her canopy bed bedroom she she teaches herself how to cast on, how to loop little nooses of yarn through other loops, scoop the, the alive loop through, and let the old loop fall away and die. Loop, 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 your rows like little crooked cornfields growing, and then you cast off and are done, and look at what you have made and can do. Ta da! she knits gifts for her mother a squarish potholder a squarish hot pad a long tubular scarf everything a wormy fuzz pink because that is how and her mother exclaims with joy at their sweet misshapenness and spills bloody meat juice on the hot pad and scorches the potholder and cannot wear the scarf because of it's so beautiful but impractical color but is so very proud and what else can the child make what else can she do she knits because she grows absorbed by the taming of chaotic string into structure the geometry of a messy line turned to a tidy grid and her fingers slim to deft and she buys slenderer needles and more elegant yarn and her after schools and weekends are now so very busy herself in her room with all those squares square, square, square a big gifty pile of them this is what she can make and do She knits because it is precious of her, because grown-ups find this little knitting girl adorable. She knits because her best friend in high school has prettier ringlet hair and wears girlier, more impractical shoes. And so she teaches her best friend how to cast on and loop-loop and cast off. And they both make the now perfect potholders, the precise hot pads, the scarves that lie flat. And then the best friend goes away to an expensive college in an icy state and returns at her first Christmas holiday with magical sweaters, glorious garments with plackets and cables, and set in sleeves and stitches like vines and popcorns and the holy appearance of lace that everyone goes ooh and ah for and the best friends it explains it is not enough to just let's get knitting the same childish stitches over and over again for row after row gets you nothing but a pile of meaningless squares that no one wants or loves you must follow a pattern in order to create an actual ooh and ah thing and she is angry and ashamed her prettier, better-shoed, and effortless-at-everything best friend had understood this, and she had not. She knits to perform the trickery with cable needles and yarn overs and ribbing and moss stitch and basket weave. She knits to tame sloppy, loose skeins into tidy, submissive balls at her hands, at her feet. She knits to exhibit mastery. She knits in public, at coffee houses and airports and parties, her crafty hands blurred with speed, and people look in approving wonder at her industriousness, her occupying and entertaining herself, her unidle hands, no lazy devil's handmaiden, she. She knits because she can rip out what is imperfect and do frogging, the unraveling of the completed or semi-completed thing to an again loose scribble because you rip it, rip it, rip it out like the ribbiting frog who is only an ugly sticky frog and not the perfect prince and then you can start all over. She knits because her kneaded dough will not rise into a proper loaf. She knits because it frightens her to read. She knits because she doesn't understand calculus. She knits for the first grown-up man she falls in love with, a damaged man whose flattering cruelty sends her to study a library of patterns, swatch multiple yarns, debate even in her sleep the best fiber content and thickness because the right sweater will heal him. The correct cotton merino or cotton cashmere or cashmere merino blend will basket weave and moss stitch and cable this man to her. The ribbing will cleave him under her and keep her at his side. Because look at this, her handmade healing labor of love. So she obsesses over this yarn's slight scratch, and will it irritate him or keep him sensitized to her? Or that yarn's lack of elasticity, and will it make of her precious gift a saggy and shapeless thing? She knits because his flattering, cruel attentions are trickling hourglass sand. His growing coolness stiffens her fingers, and so she knits faster and even faster, like the princess in the fairy story who, knit, who races to knit sweaters out of stinging nettles for her. 12 beloved brothers turned into swans from a witch's curse and thus turn them back again before they are stuck that unmanly swan way forever, knitting with bleeding fingers to save them into complete again princes by this show of her love. She knits feverishly, her fingertips pricked into splits, but the sand-gritty, times-up man carelessly thrusts her away before she can finish the last magic stitch, like the fairy tale princess ran out of time and had one sweater with only one sleeve for the swan brother, who would now be stuck with one wing instead of an arm forever, and she is consumed with guilt and fury at her failure to cast the perfect healing thing in time, and so she frogs the finished sweater erasingly wishing wishing a witch's curse on him an eternal hair shirt of stinging nettles a next in line indifferent and cruel woman who will brutally cripple and leave him as an open forever after wound she knits, a wedding pres- she knits wedding present blankets for her fiancéed friends, the Victoriana-flowered or fisherman Aaron Afghans, to adorn the feet of marital beds or drape across the mission sofas in the den or warm their couple's embrace. She knits to soak the DNA from her sweaty fingers into their lives as they TV cuddle or fuck or share nighttime tales of their tedious, stitched-up lives. She knits because she doesn't like the smell of children. She knits because she is afraid of her career. She knits because she is not allergic to cats. She knits for another man who is gentle and loving and neither frog nor prince, and she grows impatient knitting for the pattern of his gentle lovingness. She knows nothing she knits will shape him well or into the right thing, so she stealthily unravels her work by night, like Penelope's secret unweaving to forestall the choice of a suitor. But by day she keeps on knitting for the gentle, loving man, because that is what you do, that is how. She knits like the spider at the center of the web, disdains the ensnared fly even as it feeds. She knits in her mind while the gentle loving man makes love to her and she comes only when she imagines herself stabbing her shiny needles into his soft flesh, into the wet submissive ball of his heart. And so she hurries to cast him off and away before she destroys him with her hateful, unmagical knitting for real. She knits for pregnant friends' future joys, knits whimsical pea pod snugglies and pumpkin hats, and the treacle pink or frozen waist blue or gender neutral blankies to soon be covered in apple juice vomit and leaked urine. She knits for the ooh and ah baby shower moment of applause, and then it is time for the next less wondrous gift to be opened, and she knits to pity them all. She knits while watching a television program about people who choose to be cast away on a desert island and contest with each other in mock tribes to remain there, cast away and useful to their tribe in some mysterious strategy for survival. And she knows she would knit hammocks from palm frond strings so everyone might sleep hammocked up and away from the sand fleas and snakes and rats. She would knit to keep everyone else clothed. She would knit nets To catch fish, and then when all her tribal friends were well slept and fed and clothed and warm, they would cast her away, cast her off, throw her in a volcano, and be rid of her forever. She knits vests for the shivering, soapy penguins, newly cleansed of oil, because she is nurturing. She knits sweaters for the naked baby pandas in a Chinese zoo nursery, because she is internationally engaged. She knits a cardigan for her elderly father, who is already shrinking and shivering inside his closet of clothes meant for a full and warm muscled man. But she knits slowly, for she knows once the sweater is finished, he will be too. So she knits stitch by stitch as if patiently teaching a clumsy, pudge-fingered child she doesn't have until there are no more stitches to stitch, and she wraps her father's loose bones in the sweater and buries him in it, because that is how. She knits security blankets of bargain bin acrylic yarn for homeless, abandoned infants because she is maternal. She knits chemo caps, soft as kitten bellies, for brave, hair-shedding friends with translucent skin because she is supportive and merciful. She knits because studies show knitting reduces the risk of dementia and she will not become a fogged, unraveling person who must rely on mocking merciless tribal friends for survival. She knits until her hands are swollen and carpal tunneled into witchy old lady knuckle knobs, into burning nerves. She knits into numbness, into scrim. She knits and knits like Madame Defarge in her chair, content in the breeze of the guillotine blade, knits until she feels the blood has risen warm to her ankles and it is suddenly, surprisingly, her turn now. Sees she has blindly knitted herself into the woolly, smothering thing that will bag her own cold, twiggy bones. And that is all she has ever made or done. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.